listening to the One Two Three Show with me, Noreen Mir, this afternoon. Now, as you know, the Hong Kong International Literary Festival is well underway, and from now until the fifteenth of November, you'll be able to go to the events in person or online. For more, you can go to their website, which is festival.org.hk. And as their proud broadcast partner, Radio Three will also be featuring a number of their authors and speakers. Joining us this afternoon is Rana Mitter. He's a professor of history and politics of modern China and a fellow of Saint Cross College at the University of Oxford. And Rana is also the author of several books, including China's War with Japan: The Struggle for Survival, 1937 to 1945, which has won the 2014 Rusi Duke of Westminster Medal for Military Literature and was a, was also named one of the best books, one of the books of the year. Well, in my opinion, one of the best books.、Um, but it's been named、uh, one of the books of the year by the Financial Times and the Economist. And、uh, he's also just released his latest book, China's Good War and How World War Two is Shaping a New Nationalism. Welcome to the program, Rana. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Noreen, it's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm only sorry that I have to speak from my front room in Oxford online rather than joining you in person in Hong Kong because of the pandemic conditions. There's always next year. We hope you can. I'm already booking you for next year already. Sounds good to me. Now, Rana, your latest book is really timely indeed, as this is the 75th anniversary、uh, of the end of the World War Two.、Uh, let's talk about your book, China's Good War, and how World War Two is shaping a new nationalism. What do you mean by a new nationalism? Well. Noreen, I know that the title sounds a bit paradoxical, and that's one of the reasons I chose it. I have to to say because World War Two evidently ended three quarters of a three quarters of a century ago, and yet what I argue in the book is based on my own frequent visits to China over, I'd say, over twenty years now, in which I kept noticing something, and you know, many of your listeners who've been to China may have seen something similar, which is if you know where to look. World War Two seems to be everywhere. You know, you sit in your hotel room, turn on the TV in the evening. There's another World War Two drama in which you know hordes of Japanese soldiers are being brought to the ground by Chinese bullets. Or you go to the massive museum on the outskirts of Beijing, commemorating the War of Resistance against Japan, as it's known in in, in China, of course. Or To me, even more intriguingly, if you go to hear a speech by a Chinese minister, say Wang Yi, the foreign minister, which I did at Munich、uh, earlier this year at the security conference, one of his opening lines was, "At the end of World War Two, 1945, China was one of the countries, in fact, the first signatory to the United Nations Chi-、uh, United Nations Charter." So, what I've come to the conclusion, or so I've come to the conclusion that basically. China has actually been rediscovering its own history as an allied power in World War Two, having not talked about it very much during the era of Chairman Mao back, you know, half a century ago. It's almost made up for lost time in the last thirty to forty years, using that idea of this terrifically, you know, violent conflict where more than ten million Chinese lost their lives, more than a hundred million Chinese became refugees in their own country, and of course, not incidentally, held down over half a million of the opposing Japanese troops until. The Western allies came along at Pearl Harbor. All of these things make for a really powerful part of Chinese identity in the mainland today. And yet, in the West, where I'm speaking from at the moment, we just tend not to know very much about this phenomenon. So I thought, well, let's look at it and talk about it in a book. Well, you're absolutely right. I, I feel like China's role in World War Two is is. 
quite often overlooked. Now, I've seen various figures about the number of casualties in World War Two, um, and I know you've just quoted one. I've been I've been looking at one that's quoted by that's used by uh, CGTN, which quoted about 60 million soldiers and civilians were killed worldwide, and among them, 20 million were Chinese. That's one third of the global casualties. Now, perhaps those figures may be a bit inflated. I'm I'm not sure. Um, I mean, to to say the least, China has really suffered. Um, I mean, it's an understatement to say China's really suffered in World War II. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, with the, with the figures, obviously, we have to be a bit careful. And I think it's fair to say that sometimes official Chinese sources can tend to push numbers up somewhat higher than perhaps other historians would put forward. But the one thing that is the case is that certainly we have many, many millions of Chinese deaths during that year. Bearing in mind the majority not in battle, you know, there were people who were killed in regular air raids, uh, people died of starvation. There are a whole variety of causes of those deaths. What I think we're saying here is that there is a genuine and major contribution by China to the Allied war effort. And had it not been for that continued resistance, when actually most of the rest of the world, including Britain and the US, thought that China was going to fold within a year or so of the initial Chinese invasion in 19... Sorry, uh, in the wake of the initial Japanese invasion in 1937. What we have to be wary about, of course, is essentially inflating those figures beyond what is historically provable, because then we go into the realms of propaganda rather than history. And I want to make it very clear that I think China's contribution is important enough looking at the facts that we have without necessarily going into the realms of glorification and nationalism, which obviously we don't want to go into. Yeah, well, in terms of um, Chinese nationalism, it's really fascinating. Um, And for example, I have friends who are perhaps British-born Chinese or American-born Chinese, never been to China before, but they feel so strongly um, for China and they really root for China. Where does that come from? Well, I would say that in the way that I look at this particular phenomenon, the memory of World War II, it's part of a wider suite of things that I think shape Chinese identity. And I think one of the things that um, is often perhaps misleading to outsiders is some sort of thought that Chinese nationalism is simply drawn from one source. So to explain what I mean, first of all, quite often, perhaps too often, we use, we use the term nationalism to equate to xenophobia or anti-foreignism. And let's be really frank, that is there on more occasions than I think is acceptable. And I think examples of that can be a lot of the rhetoric we've heard during the coronavirus pandemic over the last year from China's so-called wolf warrior diplomats. And many people will know that that is actually the the name of a film, extremely macho, pretty jingoistic uh, movie with a sequel that were released a few years ago. And that kind of very aggressive language against the West, uh, against Chinese who don't agree with the government, you know, I think we have to push back and say, this is not what a confident nation state is about. But I think we shouldn't let that distract us from the fact that there is a wider story as well. There are many strands of what build up Chinese nationhood, and and that is different, I think, from uh, a very aggressive sort of nationalism. Let's think about Chinese traditional thought, you know, Confucianism, uh, Zhuangzi, Sunzi, all these kind of great thinkers of the past. I think it's wonderful that in recent years, you know, after the horrors of the Cultural Revolution of the 60s and 70s, that China is rediscovering 
its own philosophical past and trying to apply it to the present day. And we see plenty of that if you go to China today with people, you know, looking at what uh, Confucius really had to uh, to say and trying to to apply it to, to modern life. I think it's also actually not a bad thing to remember modern history. So World War Two as a shaping factor in China's modern history, of course. But also it is worth noting that the Opium Wars, which, of course, brought Hong Kong into colonial possession, are something that both the West and China needs to look at in a frank but nuanced way, understanding positive and the negative sides. I mean, I myself think that Hong Kong is a fantastic place and it wouldn't be the kind of place it is with the freedoms that it has today had it not been for that period of rule in which West and East came together, often in very violent circumstances. So we have to see the ambiguities there. And beyond that, of course, we have to look at the fact that Chinese national identity is also shaped by, I think, a sense that it's got something to say about the emerging world. You know, what I mean by that is that if you look to Latin America, If you look to Africa, if you look to parts of Southeast Asia, people often want to push back rightly against often a rather uh, confrontational Chinese style. But they like some of the things like the investment, the infrastructure and perhaps a different way of doing things compared to some of what happens in the West. So this is by no means saying that the Chinese have got it right, because frankly, frankly, quite often Beijing gets both the tone and the substance of what it says entirely wrong. But I think it's also worth noting that in terms of cultural tradition and some of the aspects perhaps to do with economic development, you can see a Chinese nation state story, both about domestic change and international influence, that the rest of the world needs to listen to, even if at many times it should also push back quite hard. In terms of Chinese influence, I mean, there's there's no denying just how much it's been contributing to developing uh, economies like Sri Lanka or Ethiopia, different countries in, in Africa. Um, is there a big pushback from those countries because of the differences of culture? On one hand, they're relying on the investment, but on the other hand, um, it's just not their style. Well, I think if you look at some of these places, and one of my wonderful colleagues, for instance, at uh, Oxford University, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Dr. Miriam Dreesen, does amazing work on Ethiopia and China and travels between the, the two. And I think is possibly the only person I know who speaks, I think, both Chinese and Amharic pretty uh, fluently. So, you know, it's a great combination and a sign, I hope, that our own university does really in-depth uh, uh, research. Um, I won't you know, speak for her research because she does her own stuff wonderfully, but I'll just say a few things that I've gathered about that Ethiopia relationship. So I think it's a really one to point out both the pluses and the minuses of what Chinese influence means. Now, let's start with the minus side, because it is what people tend to bring up and we have to acknowledge that it can be real. I would say that Chinese racial attitudes towards many of the um, black um, nations of sub-Saharan Africa are not yet, I think, ones in which the conversation is felt to be truly racially enlightened and a conversation of equals. The fact is there is a lot of racism still um, in China, partly because I think of lack of exposure to uh, uh, to other cultures. Uh, and I think that has to be to be called out and, and acknowledged. There's also, I think, some stories that do make your uh, uh, your eyebrows rise. And I'm thinking here of uh, the fact that China built uh, the, the new Africa Union, African Union building in Addis Ababa. Um, and from all accounts, plenty of the information from uh, that uh, building is uh, sent back on wires to somewhere in China late at night as someone discovered when they were looking into the security arrangements. And I think this sort of thing just does not do China's image any good, and it's not necessary. But let's talk about the other side of it. 
in what in Britain we call a pub quiz question, uh, Noreen. If you're ever asked, what is the only sub-Saharan African country that has a metro rail system? I believe the answer is Addis Ababa. And it was built by both Chinese engineering by techniques. By Chinese, wow. And, and, and with Chinese investment through um, uh, uh, development loans and, uh, and so forth. In Ethiopia, last time I checked, had, I think, an 11% growth rate. Now, not all of that is due to Chinese investment, but I don't think Chinese investment hurts in this case. And there's one other fact that's really important for understanding the nuances of the China story in Africa and elsewhere. Ethiopia is a democracy. It's a robust democracy, and sometimes it's a very flawed democracy, but it hasn't turned into a mini version of China as an authoritarian state. And its prime minister, of course, last year won the Nobel Peace Prize in terms of post-civil conflict uh, uh, peace uh, resolutions. And, you know, I think I got the story there is that I think as long as the economic story works for China, it's not, I think, intervening directly to try and turn Ethiopia into a mini version of, of China. So I think we've had there, you know, the bad, the good and the complex and nuanced. And I think it's really important to have that mixture of things together if we're going to understand China. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, in the context of, uh, of the World War II story, we have to both acknowledge what China's contribution was, call out the fact that it's sometimes being used for unacceptable anti-Japanese language, which I think we should condemn, and realize that the way that the Chinese think about their own identity and history is also quite complex, quite nuanced, and we have to look at it in the wider sphere. So we've looked at China's influence in in uh, countries like um, well in in Ethiopia. Um, perhaps let's let's look at what critics would say about China about how China's no doubt a superpower, and some would say that you know with power comes responsibility, and and if you're playing along with other big players, um, you've got to play more or less by the same rules um, along the other same players. But it, it, some critics might say that China you know, sometimes plays by its own rules. Not only that, but it expects other people to follow their rules. Um, what's your assessment of that, Rana? I think it's a great question. And I think really the, the, the kind of short version is to say that if China wants to become a power with global influence and uh, global respect, then it needs to understand that its own behavior, both at home and abroad, cannot be subject to um, a whitewash. Uh, you can't simply give China a pass. And I say that because Chinese foreign ministry spokespeople, you know, the, the wolf warriors we've spoken about, will quite often say that talking about X or Y happening inside China is uh, interference with the uh, the rights of China. So a couple of notes on that, just to, to illustrate what, what I think we have to talk about here, in a way that both calls out the truth and acknowledges you know, what China's position is. So I always like to point out when we talk about human rights, and we should talk about human rights, that back in 1948, in the aftermath of World War II, as one of the products of World War II, uh, China signed up to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And not just that, the declaration was written by a variety of scholars and thinkers, including P.H. Zhang, a Chinese philosopher. Now, today, China is very much claiming ownership of that whole post-UN world. You know, as I said, Foreign Minister Wang Yi is out there saying, we were there signing the charter in 1940. Well, if you acknowledge that, and it's great that you do, you also have to acknowledge 1948 and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. One other example. China today says that what's going on in Xinjiang with the camps and what's going on in Hong Kong in terms of uh, the constricting of, of, of various freedoms, which, as I say, I, I hope is not going to be the way that Hong Kong's freedoms uh, uh, keep uh, keep going, um, are internal matters for China. 
Well, in a literal sense, of course, that is true. We have to acknowledge that. But think about the United States. Think about the last country that was looking to rise to global power in the Cold War era. In the 1950s and 1960s, the shining beacon of the you know, Enlightenment project in the Cold War world. What was the huge stain on America's record then? It was, of course, the record towards the African-American population, the question of race, where, of course, America was treating its black citizens abominably. And when people from around the world said, you know, this is unacceptable, American thinkers, you know, right wingers said, no, this is America's business. You mustn't comment on this. Now, Chairman Mao, no less, wasn't having any of this. He invited in a superb act of trolling, uh, amongst others, Huey P. P. Newton, the head of the Black Panthers, to visit Beijing. There's some great pictures online you can see of that particular set of encounters, I think, with, with Joe and Lai. So China's been in this game for a while. And I noted that over the summer, they even tweeted back, this is the foreign ministry of China, uh, when George Floyd was you know, tragically uh, uh, killed by a police officer, they tweeted out, we can't breathe. So that's great. China's saying that we have a right to talk about the race question in the United States. Absolutely right. Quite right for China to say that. But in that case, the rest of the world also looks at China, particularly after 2017, the plenum speech by the leadership saying China's going to take a global role. And the world can say, well, we welcome China being in the world. We welcome China being a responsible global citizen. And that means that we also get to tell you where we think you're getting it right on poverty reduction, for instance, and where you're getting it wrong in terms of the way in which questions of race and ethnicity and identity are being dealt with. And a mature China, a confident China, a China that can talk to the world rather than shout at it will have no problem with that whatsoever. So that's the stage that we need to get to with China. So what scares China? I mean, you mentioned just now that, that the protests in Hong Kong, which, to be honest, the freedoms in Hong Kong, we can still openly criticize the government. People are still, you know, I, I don't think our liberties are sort of taken away. People are still saying what they want on social media. People are still calling in radio programs to criticize the government, criticizing China. Um, you know, the freedoms are still there in Hong Kong. So why are why are people in Hong Kong so worried? Well, you have to obviously ask people in Hong Kong, and I look forward to, to getting back why they're directly worried in that sense. But I think it's really important to, to note what you've just said, uh, Noreen, that, you know, I, I write quite regularly for the South China Morning Post and nobody then or now has ever tried to change anything I've said, much of which has been you know trying to point out what China's got right and much of which is pointing out what China's got wrong. And no one's ever tried to cut out a single word and I don't expect them to uh, uh, to do that. I think from the outside we will be looking at the following factors. Does the free press continue to be uh, um, something that shapes the public culture of Hong Kong? That's you guys at RTHK. We're all looking out for what you're doing. We want you to keep speaking out both in your English and Chinese um, uh, um, incarnations, getting it right, uh, telling us where we're getting it right and where we're getting it wrong. In addition, the judiciary, that will be very, very important. Is it really going to be... Um, Hong Kong people and Hong Kong's legal system in the end, making the adjudication on the questions that matter in terms of free speech and freedom. So one of the things that's really important is that education, whether in schools or universities about history, must be history and not propaganda. So whether it's but who writes history, Chinese, history isn't isn't history just a series of people's recollection, their opinion. So, you know, what's your truth might be different to somebody else's truth. That's absolutely not what history is. History, uh, that, that's, that's oral memoir, that's recollection. History is about taking as much evidence as you can possibly imagine, imagine about, uh, sorry, taking as much evidence as you can possibly gather about something in the past, 
making sure you appreciate it all, and then putting your judgment on it. And one of the reasons that we never agree as historians is not just because academics are naturally cantankerous, although that's certainly <laughs> true, but also more broadly speaking, because there's no one interpretation of history. So, you know, there is no one history of the Chinese Communist Party. And I would say, actually, that's true on both sides. Neither the kind of propagandist glorifying history you'll find in a textbook in Beijing, or actually the utterly negative view that you'll get in some right-wing quarters, which, for instance, move past the idea that there is some reason why the economic miracle in China has happened over the last um, 40 years. But on the first front, you know, we cannot talk about the history of the Chinese Communist Party without talking about the immense violence that marks its uh, progression to uh, ultimate power. So that mixture and then the ability to weigh up these issues is really what historical judgment and historical writing is about. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, why the Hong Kong Literary Festival, I think, is so valuable in this context. Because I noticed that not only do I get to speak with a fantastic historian of Maoism, uh, Julia Lovell, at my own uh, event, but elsewhere, plenty of nuanced, variant history from around the world is turning up there. And I think it's a great example of what history, uh, in terms of its complexity and nuance, is really about. Yeah. Rana, so I, I was asking you earlier, so what scares China? I think there are several things that scare China. But when you say China, are you referring then, Noreen, to the party leadership or are you talking about the wider society as a whole? Because it's not necessarily the same thing. Perhaps let's start um, with the party then. I think the party is scared about factors it can't control that it thinks will undermine uh, its rule and society as a whole. And I would say that the two things are worth putting together, because while I think it is true that the Communist Party is desperately a concern to maintain its own rule, I think there's no doubt about that. I think its concern for certain aspects of social change, including ecological change and economic development, are real as well. It's not simply about sort of, you know, keeping their own um, uh, party interests uh, going in that sense. But what they've ended up doing as a result is, in my opinion, miscalculating quite strongly the best way to keep that stability, because it seems that the way that things are going at the moment, the pathway is to much more coercion and constraint on society, freedom of speech for academics, tamping down of all questions of ethnic difference and, and identity. And actually, it seems to me that both the liberal world, which I sit in, and the Chinese Communist Party have got something in particular wrong. They're kind of looking at the wrong thing, in a sense, because I think there's an obsession about democratization in the terms of liberal democratization. The Chinese Communist Party hates the idea because obviously they don't want you know, multiple parties in, uh, in China. Sometimes the Western world gets really obsessed with democracy, even though, as we've seen in many countries, um, India, the Philippines, the United States, uh, depending on you know, what happens at the presidential election, you can democratically let leaders who are pretty authoritarian in their, uh, in their in instincts. And what I think is important in Hong Kong is a really great example of this, is how you can have a society that actually has more liberal space in it. I think a China which had much more space for investigative reporting, which of course 10 years ago, some of the great Chinese newspapers, you know, the Nanfang Zhuomo, the Southern Weekend, uh, Weibo, which is a lot more free 10 years ago than it is now, looking at social evils and, you know, bringing those up. That's the kind of thing that a society progressing in the right direction ought to have more of. And sadly, I think there's less of it rather than more. The, 
the Chinese authorities, the party and the government could do a great deal to open up those channels again without having to think about democratization. And if I may give one more name check, there's a fantastic book by the uh, historian uh, Bai Tongdong based at Fudan University, so within the Chinese mainland. Um, and it's called, I think it's called Against Equality, which is a very provocative title. But the book's really interesting. It's published in English and it argues that if you had a less democratic society in some cases, including in China, you could actually have a more liberal society. I'd recommend that book for everyone, not just in the Politburo in China, but actually for Westerners who want to think about where the Chinese speaking world should uh, should go. Keeping those freedoms, I think, is a really core part of what should be happening in Hong Kong now, and also the way that China needs to think about if it's not going for democracy, what kind of society is it going for? Freedom, I think, is at the heart of that. Yeah. Rana, it's been such a pleasure to, to talk to you this afternoon. And for those of our listeners who want to see him in action, uh, you can go to the festival's website and check out his talk, which is on the 14th of November, uh, China Rising the Global Legacies of Maoism and World War II. It will be from 7.30 until 8.30 at JC Cube Tycoon. You can still get tickets now. Uh, meanwhile, thank you so much for your time today, Rana, and I look forward to meeting you in person one day. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Noreen. It's been a pleasure.